people say they are in this holy way. There are strange things happening every day. On that last red judgment day, when they drive them all away, there are strange things happening every day. Every day. Every day. Every day. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of So Important. My guest today is Dr. Gail Wald, professor of English and the chair of American Studies at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Gail is the author of a remarkable book, Shout, Sister, Shout, the untold story of rock and roll trailblazer, Sister Rosetta Tharp. And it's Sister Rosetta Tharp that we're going to talk about today. Rosetta Tharp is one of the most extraordinary women in modern music. In a career spanning from the 1930s to the 1970s, not only did she play a pivotal role in bringing gospel to the masses, both in the United States and abroad, but she was a virtuoso guitarist who, it might be argued, is also one of the true inventors of rock and roll. That's a strong statement. The fact is, Sister Rosetta Tharp's contributions to music, both secular and gospel, could probably be characterized as just a little underappreciated, or at least not as well known as they should be. So I am very pleased to have Dr. Wald with me to talk about Sister Rosetta Tharp and all she has done, not only for music, but as a groundbreaking performer in a largely male-dominated profession. So Gail, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, absolutely. And I want to tell you, I've read your book a couple times now. It's a remarkable book about a truly unique individual. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about Sister Rosetta Tharp and what drew you to her story and led you to write this book. Rosetta Tharp is the first gospel superstar in American music. She was born in 1915 in small town in Arkansas, but grew up in Chicago and traveling around mostly the South with her mother, who was an evangelist for the Church of God in Christ, and Rosetta Tharp grew up in that tradition. She started out as um, a musical evangelist with her mother, who would also um, sing and play the mandolin and preach. And then um, starting the late 1930s, she became a secular commercial music sensation by bringing some of her gospel work to kind of, you know, all audiences through um, her work on Decca Records and by performing at some of the biggest nightclubs starting in New York City in the late 1930s. And she went on and had a varied career as a recording artist and performer. Um, she played with uh, big bands. She did solo work. She recorded as a duetist with her uh, singing partner, Marie Knight. And she performed pretty much up until uh, she died in 1973 when she was 57 years old. Um, at the time, she was living in Philadelphia. She was working on a new album when she died. So she's a tremendously varied career and appealed to all different kinds of audiences. I was drawn to her because when I first saw a videotape of her in the 1990s, I was really blown away by her charisma and her virtuosity as an electric guitarist. 
And I soon discovered that she was this incredibly underappreciated figure in gospel and in secular music, but also as a kind of female trailblazer in the world of popular music. And once you see her and hear her perform, it's hard to get her out of your head. And that was the case for me as well. And then it was just a matter of committing myself to actually trying to record her story as best I I could. And she really had a remarkable career path because breaking from the uh, church as she did was uh, frowned upon a little bit by that community. Isn't that fair to say? Yeah, 100%. It was very, very unusual. And uh, she did it as a young woman. She she began her career as a DECA recording artist after she left her first husband, who, the person who, who would be her first husband, who was a, um, a preacher in Florida. And so on so many levels, her the beginning of her career was unconventional and involved stepping over, if not demolishing, <laughs> rules that other people had made and leaving the church, although she never, I guess I should say she never really left the church. She always kept one foot in the world of the church. And I think always thought of herself as a Christian musician and a gospel musician. I don't think she minded um, much what other people, however, other people categorized her music, but by performing, by bringing the music outside of the sphere of the church and into nightclubs and places where the music could be consumed, you know, not for religion, but for entertainment. That was a big um, deal. And she was really one of the first people to do that. Tell me, didn't it rain, children? Rain all night long. Didn't it? Yes. Didn't it? You know it did or didn't it? Oh, my Lord, how it rained. Tell me, didn't it rain, 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 oh, my Lord. Didn't it? Yes. Didn't it? You know it did, didn't it? Oh, my Lord, how it rained. Oh, it rained 40 days, 40 nights without stopping. Noah was glad when the rain stopped dropping. Some was at the window, some was at the door. Some cried, Noah, can't you take on more? But Noah cried out, uh-uh, my friends. The angels got the key and you can't get in. I know it rained, you know it rained. Rain too long, all night long. Rain in the east, rain in the west, rain in the north, rain in the south. A rain, a rain, a rain, a rain, a rain, a rain, here is this woman who grew up in the gospel tradition, but broke out, found herself touring the country with uh, any number of bands and had some success. And before you know it, she was playing in New York at uh, the Cotton Club and any number of uh, very secular environments. Yeah. And um, it's not totally clear, you know, what what happened um, in late 1938 to, to move her from the Miami area where she was at that point a preacher's wife and really doing entirely work within the church to all of a sudden being catapulted into New York nightlife. Um, but she, what we do know is that she was, you know, the, the phrase overnight sensation is, you know, a cliche, but she was really something like, if not overnight, a pretty early sensation. She was one of the performers at the famous From Spirituals to Swing concert organized in the late 30s at Carnegie Hall that was really a major concert for introducing white audiences and and, and middle class audiences, kind of the intelligentsia of New York City 
to Black musical traditions, including gospel music. And she was there as one of the gospel performers. So she was right there at the transition or at the beginning when gospel music begins to kind of move outside of the confines of particular churches. And you can really begin to hear the way that it starts becoming part of the fabric of American music. Precious memories. I'll get to yours in a minute. barrier play a role in her career and how did she overcome it? There's no African-American artist who overcame those barriers. You know, even arguably into the 60s and 70s, those those barriers determined how she could be marketed, what kind of repertoire record uh, companies were willing to see her do, what kinds of performance venues were available to her. So it, it wasn't so much a question of overcoming But I do think what she was enormously good at doing was um, attracting a variety of audiences because gospel music was, um, is uplifting. um, And because she is a, um, was a kind of charismatic and kind of uplifting also to the point, to the point of sometimes being like kind of, you know, like really a showman. Um, That's kind of the kind of performer she was. I think she used those talents that she had to really uh, draw an audience to herself, including for people who, who weren't part of the church. Uh, and that was important that she managed to use those skills, but broaden her audience. She seems like a very charismatic individual and people were just drawn to her. She almost always performs with a smile. Some of these, some of these, um, I mean, I think that this wasn't just like she was naturally happy or something. I think these were uh, performing ways of performing that she developed from being a musical evangelist in the church. She had to be uplifting. She had to draw people's attention to her guitar playing. She had to keep people's interest. She had to make sure um, the choir director didn't interrupt her. You know, she, it was, you had to be, you had to keep people's attention. And so I think she developed, she was, smiling. She liked to do daredevil moves on her guitar. She liked to be a show off on her guitar. And she had a a kind of clarion, you know, especially early in her career as a young woman had a really kind of beautiful bell-like voice. She had good um, volume, which she needed early on because she would have been performing without a microphone. So she was able to do all of these things. And then they translated maybe initially not that well onto record, but she was able finally to be able to bring some of that energy onto the recordings. Certainly in the live performances, she could do that. The many, many people who cite her as an influence, the blistering guitar playing, she was really uh, influential in rock and roll, wasn't she? Yeah. And in in my book, I'm less interested in ascribing any kind of singular importance to her. I don't really quite believe in the inventor of rock and roll narrative for anyone, although 
we're recording this in the wake of little Richard's death and that phrase has come up again. And I guess if anyone deserves <laughs> the label, there's a way that little Richard does um, among some other people. That said, I think of her influence on rock and roll in a kind of multi-determined way. From the church, she brought a kind of energy to performing that was not necessarily part of popular music that was not part of the African-American tradition of popular music, let's say in the 20s and 30s. Styles of singing can, you know, as as amazing as they were, sound canned, can sound canned. She didn't have any of that coyness. She was incredibly energetic. She brought magnetism to her singing and her playing. She used the guitar as a second voice and really as her its own voice. She was one of those people who I think contributed to inventing the bridge where the guitar takes over and the singer gives the, you know, gives the voice to the guitar and the guitar sings. She's one of the inventor of those movements, her loudness. That's also part of um, coming from the church and kind of exuberant styles of musical worship that she came out of. So I think all of that contributed kind of, it's just, it's, it's her sound, it's her presentation and it's the energy associated with the music that could then, you know, turn into something we call rock and roll. Keith Richards, Bob Dylan, all and many others who really cited her as an influence. In fact, she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2018 under the category of early influence. Um, There's so many musicians, uh, Little Richard, Etta James, who call her out specifically um, as an influence. So not including those who admired her, but who maybe didn't have an opportunity to use a big public platform to say so. But Johnny Cash mentions her when he was inducted into the Rock Hall. And Elvis Presley talked about her to his backup musicians, the Jordanaires, who also performed with her. So there were many ways that she was kind of this figure that a lot of musicians knew about. And I think even when she was less well-known, let's say by quote-unquote general public, musicians always knew who she was. Right. And you have a great quote from Bob Dylan, Sister Rosetta Tharp was anything but ordinary and plain. She was a big, good-looking woman and divine, not to mention sublime and splendid. She was a powerful force of nature, a guitar-playing, singing evangelist. Uh, you know, I think about um, you know Bob Dylan's early musical forays as a teenager in Minnesota being to imitate Little Richard as best he could to the point of trying to play piano with the you know, leg up on the, on the piano. Um, and so if you think about Bob Dylan 
hearing over the radio and buying records by, you know, Rosetta Tharp or Little Richard, you can kind of begin to tell a story about the importance of, I mean, Little Richard is from the same church tradition that Rosetta Tharp is from, Pentecostal church. And so you can begin to see not just like when people talk about gospel as one of the influences into rock, but you can really begin to think about how gospel musicians were able to translate. It's that kind of music for spirit that gospel musicians figured out how to do in a particular way that then actually gets transposed into secular music so that rock becomes like it's a cliche to say it but you know kind of like a religion it it is a spiritual experience for people why do you think she was underappreciated for so many years i think there's really two sets of reasons one has to do with the fact that she was always straddling worlds she straddled the world between sacred you know gospel music and kind of popular entertainment so that that meant that in the histories of rock and roll she was marginalized as a gospel singer and player. And in gospel music, she was kind of seen as an entertainer. So in both traditions, she was a little bit of a marginal figure. But I think also the fact that she was a black woman was incredibly important to, you know, to kind of her, her erasure. I came across a clipping, a news clipping from a British music magazine. This was from 19, the early 1970s. And the music journalist who was describing Rosetta Tharp referred to her uh, as kind of an imitation Elvis. And what he had totally mixed up was the order of influence. So he saw her as imitating Elvis, and he didn't know that Elvis was in fact imitating her. And because this was published when she was still alive, it was a testament to the incredible power of cultural narratives in the early 1960s and late 1950s, let's say a broad public associated rock and roll with black musicians like Chuck Berry and like Little Richard, by the late 1960s and certainly the 1970s, the image had changed and people now thought of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and so on. So there's something about that process that happens in rock and roll that by the seventies, it was totally possible to see, to kind of erase her importance. And it was, she was already a kind of marginal figure because she was a woman and because of entrenched notions that the best guitar players are men, which, you know, we're still dealing with in many ways. It seems like it would be fair to characterize her as someone who's very inspirational and someone Mm -hmm. who can, empower uh, women in this area and maybe others. Yeah. You know, she, she played like she wasn't afraid and she also played like she was divinely inspired. And I think that that playing like she was divinely inspired, you, you know, came from her belief and was rooted in her faith, but translated into an incredible, just confidence. So she glowed <laughs> you know, when she played the guitar and you know, she also had a habit when she played of looking up. And partly I think that was developed as like stagecraft in the church. It was a kind of looking up for inspiration. But what it translates into in a secular context is, you know, she plays a guitar solo and she never looks down at her strings. And she always has a kind of mischievous look on her face, a look of concentration, but also a look of, you know, look what I can do. 
And um, I think that that's why so many people are still so drawn to her is because of this confidence that she exudes in herself and in her ability and in her gift. I have a right to sing and shout. Yes, I have a right to sing and shout. I have a right to move about. I know I have a right to move about. I have a right to serve. Yes, I have a right to serve. Spreading abroad his fame. I'll keep on spreading abroad his fame. The Lord have done great things for me. I know he have done great things for me. He saved me, healed me, set me free. Yes, he saved me, healed me, set me free. Don't you see? And you write very poignantly about her last year or two when she was dying and the uh, events that took place in Philadelphia afterward. Is that something you could talk about for a moment? Sure. So Rosetta Tharp died um, in 1973 uh, from complications from diabetes that she had been dealing with for several years. And she hadn't gotten adequate medical treatment. And so her diabetes made her very ill. By the time she died, because she, from also from diabetes, she had had a leg amputated a few years earlier. Her performing career had been truncated, you know, so she had been a fading figure. And, you know, the market for her kind of gospel music also by the 70s, there was still a market for it, but it was kind of your mother's gospel music. Um, it was the taste of older listeners rather than newer, younger record buyers. There was a modest funeral in Philadelphia where she had been living for 20 years. And then she was buried. And it turns out that a grave marker was never put up on her grave. So for many years, when I started working on the book, um, and actually when the book was published um, in 2007, she had no marker on her gravestone. And when I went there initially to visit her, you know, you had to have like a map to figure out which patch of grass was her patch of grass. That changed by 2009. There was a tribute concert held in Philadelphia. The Dixie Hummingbirds performed there. Um, the singer Odetta was there and one of probably one of her last performances. I remember she performed from a wheelchair and enough money was raised to be able to purchase a gravestone and to have her good friend supply the epitaph. And then, you know, in the years since then, the recognition has really multiplied. Streets have been named for her. her. There's a historic marker in front of what used to be her house in Philadelphia. Uh, there's a section of a highway outside of Cotton Plant, Arkansas, dedicated to her. She's in various smaller halls of fame and also in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So there's many, many accolades that, that have been kind of snowballing over the years. You mentioned Odetta and some of the other performers, the Dixie Hummingbirds and a few others. And I guess that really speaks to her legacy, doesn't it? That she she was somebody who was, who was appreciated and influenced a lot of people right up to the end. You know, this is someone who managed to have influence in the world of gospel and in the world of kind of popular music at the same time. And that's that had to do with her straddling of these worlds, which was, you know, moving from the you know gospel world into popular music and then kind of never quite going back. And so her influence these days is on you know I think young people have really 
been inspired by her as a female trailblazer. I think young women still can look at her as like a woman who rocked out before her time. But I think there's also a, you know, argument for her importance in gospel, which is, you know, they come together at some point, but they're also really different. Well, Gail, I think you've, you've really given us a good picture of this uh, remarkable individual. And I, I really appreciate your spending some time with me to talk about Sister Rosetta Tharp. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Hallelujah. Shout, Mr. Shout. Hallelujah. Tell the whole world what it's all about.